great to be here tonight. You're pathetic. You're all pathetic. Sorry, that's just how the uh, monk here say hello. Say hello. Episode 8 of Undecided Podcast. My name is Tara, and I'm here uh, with my co-host, Kate Reeve. Uh, she's, uh, again, in her, you know, Ottawa studio. Uh, hi, Kate. <laughs> hi. And I'm gonna pour myself a splash of bourbon, because um, I, 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 now I can't do this podcast without being a little drunk. Uh, cool. <laughs> uh, so, that's, that's the, the wheels are in motion with that. All right, well, while Tara gets herself set up, um, I'll start with the news this week. So first off, um, we found out this week that Doug Ford is um, quite comfortable with uh, with doing some U-turns because mm-hmm. in, a, in a video that was released, he's talking to developers and he promises that he would open up the Toronto Greenbelt, which is the largest protected green space and it it surrounds Toronto and the GTA and like the Golden Horseshoe area. So he says this would be his plan to provide affordable housing. Um, so he's going to open it up. There's a lot of stuff going on there. Yeah, he's going to open it up for development um, <laughs> basically. For And he's promising this to commercial developers mm. who would make an enormous profit off of this and it would be really detrimental to this environment because these are really ecologically sensitive areas. Hmm. Um, anyway, this got a lot of blowback. So within the week, he completely reversed his position and said that he fully supports the green belt and he would not be opening it to development. Um, the liberals then jumped on that train and said that Choo-choo. they would promise, yeah, to expand the green belt if they're reelected. So they would broaden it into the Orangeville area, um, although they haven't exactly said how wide it would be. Mm. I, 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 he doesn't strike me as a person who gives a shit about anything except for getting elected. And, like, obviously, like, those developers, like, uh, uh, potentially could be uh, campaign donors. So, um... Yeah, for sure. And the other thing is, this video is not new. It was only released this week. But it oh. was apparently taken um, during the, the leadership race for the Conservative Party. That's that raises some interesting questions yeah like uh what his motives are and what they have been from the beginning interesting mm-hmm. okay um so we, that we got that tidbit uh what's next yeah well another depressing piece of news um so yesterday it was released on a bunch of different ontario news websites that two major long-term care providers in ontario um are being sued in class action lawsuits. So this industry, um, this industry of long-term care is seeking to kind of capitalize off of the aging population in Canada by providing um, homes and services to families who need to get their parents taken care of. But um, these lawsuits are alleging that the seniors 
in the care of these two companies, which are called Extendicare mm-hmm. and Leisure World. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Leisure World, yep. Um, so they're saying that systemically, their parents and their family members aren't being taken care of properly. So they've provided photos, including really horrible bed sores, like down to the bone, oh. extreme weight loss, oh. um, just serious neglect so um this class action will probably include a fair amount of um i don't know what the fancy law term is for is it claimants and you have a defendant you have a claimant i think i can't be uh, i can't be a source of any thing (laughs) okay well it'll probably um end up including a fair amount of claimants or something like that um and this is these two companies operate across Ontario. So there, there are cases that have been publicized about people who are in Ottawa and people who are in homes in Toronto and elsewhere as well. So this is a real provincial issue, and it speaks to the gaps in our long-term care system. Yeah, and it's really like this. This is like the you know the the disgusting of the disgusting, and I'm not talking about the bed sores. Like these kind of people who are like just profiting off of like you know, old, sick people, and then not even giving them the care that they, that their families provided for and worked hard to, um, to get them, um, you know, cause the waiting line, like the lines for these places, Kate, are like, they can, it can take years to get into like facilities like this. Um, yeah. so it's really, it's really gross. Um, and, uh, no, definitely horrible. points to the gap in our, in gaps in our system. Like, um, obviously like all of these uh like facilities are uh, are either partially privatized or like completely privatized so um you know putting that into public hands would make a huge difference um not just um on a uh like on a financial level to families but also on a quality of care level because it has to be standard it would have to be standardized across uh you know uh, across all facilities Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is just this jumped out at me when I was doing my research. Um, CTV News reported that the company's CEO, so the CEOs of both these um, long care term, term, long care term, oh my god, long term care. care facilities <laughs> are are both making over one and a half million dollars per year. Jesus, and then their patients are literally rotting away. That's disgusting. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Um, all right. Uh, on to, this is like less depressing, but, um, still like kind of concerning. Um, mm-hmm. Kate and I have kind of had our eye on this for a couple weeks, uh, cause, um, it like, it came out a couple weeks ago that, uh, the auditor general of Ontario, uh, uh, did, did get, basically did the books, uh, for the 2018 budget and said that, uh, there was like an accounting issue with what the liberals uh, projected the deficit to be. Um, mm-hmm. And she said that like they had like underestimated what the deficit would be by $12 billion. Right, Kate? Um, yeah. So the auditor general said about two weeks ago that the liberals have reported that they're going to be running a $6.7 billion deficit. And she said that it's actually going to be around $12 billion. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, like as um, as um, Kate uh, and uh, our 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 special guests for this week will mention later in this episode, um, there is like a, you know, 
it's the importance of doing spending on like social services like the liberal government is doing or like the NDP government uh, or an NDP government would do or is proposing to do, um, you know, that can eliminate like a fiscal deficit uh, or it can reduce the chances of, of, of like us running like a larger fiscal deficit. If we, if we make the social spending measures now to, you know, uh, get people the kind of care they need, whether it's mental health or um, regular health um, or, you know, um, you know, making sure kids can uh, like achieve their highest potential in school and et cetera. But yeah. when you, but when you, when you're, you need to be transparent about what kind of deficit you're going to be running. Um, and I exactly. think, so, and we, we weren't sure if this was news or we weren't sure if this was like worth talking about a couple of weeks ago, but now a second uh, independent source basically supported these claims by the auditor general about the $12 billion deficit. So on May 2nd, the financial accountability office and announced that the province's deficit will likely be around 12 billion this year Mm -hmm. which is similar to what the auditor general said um and they basically say that there is a and i'm directly quoting here um the chief economist of the financial accountability office and he says there's a fundamental imbalance between the revenues and the spending Hmm. in the 2018 liberal budget. Right. So, yeah, I don't think neither of us have an issue, obviously, with social spending. Mm -hmm. The issue arises when it's not clearly laid out. Yeah. And I'm not sure if this is different interpretations, but to me, um, math seems pretty clear cut. I'm just, uh, yeah, I'm like, I I would love, maybe like this can be uh, something we do next week, Kate. I'd love to have someone on to explain how you can have like two different, like, things that are correct about math like I, you know mm-hmm. like like I, I I'm really struggling to like understand like how you come up with like two different um you know uh, like there it's not too it's so not possible for two things, things yeah things to be true in this case so I'll be in, uh, I'll be waiting I'm waiting for someone to explain this to me um uh <laughs> thanks uh, if you have any uh any insight you can share that with me um all right. Uh, I think with that, we'll get headed to our topic this week. Uh, very, uh, very um, pleased and proud to announce our eighth episode mm-hmm. is um, education in Ontario. Um, and Kate has done a beautiful job of interviewing um, two uh, educators, uh, two teachers. Um, they both teach in the Ontario. Oh, God, I'm going to mess up this acronym, but it's the Catholic district school board of eastern ontario yes that's what it is okay but i can give you a little background on them they've both um there's two um women female teachers (laughs) um they both have over 20 years of experience in the classroom so they've been teaching since the 90s um yeah and they teach in rural ontario so just outside of ottawa Mm -hmm. um they mainly teach grade two to grade eight but currently um, one teaches grade seven and eight, and the other teaches grade six. Okay, and um, Kate uh, asked them uh, some questions about um, what they'd be looking for in a premier um, in June, uh, what some of the kinks uh, or some of the things our system is lacking, um, and uh, why they became teachers in the first place and why they continue to teach. It's a, it's a lovely little interview. We're really excited to share it with you. So without further ado... Kate's interview with a couple Sorry, teachers. Sorry, that's just how the uh, here say hello. Say hello. Okay, so the first question I have is if you can please describe some of the challenges that you face every day as a teacher. Class size is, I think, 
for me, the biggest problem I would identify uh, right now, um, two out of three of my groups are over 30, so 31, 32. Uh, it's grade seven. It's too many kids in a not very big space. Um, there's so many different needs in the room. There's academic needs, social emotional needs, uh, behavioral needs, and all these things need to be addressed and, and they, they have to be addressed at the same time. So what ends up happening is you're putting so much of your time and your energy into putting out fires in different places rather than getting to really focus on the things that you want to focus on more to try to move everybody forward. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, class size isn't as much of an issue. I'm very fortunate this year. I have under 25 students in my morning class and I have under 20 students in my afternoon class. So for me, the bigger issue is meeting the diverse needs of the kids in the class. I have um, several high needs identified behavior students. I have um, about four students who are reading more than four years below grade level. Um, So for me, and then I have some very high achieving students as well. So trying to bridge that gap where I know that my high achieving students have fully grasped the material that I'm trying to relay and so I'm trying to find additional work for them or you know they're they're reading independently waiting for the next activity to take place while I'm trying to bring the other kids even close to grade level and then there's those children in the middle so it's 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 meeting the needs of the kids and trying to somehow bridge that gap between the weaker students and the stronger students it's a daily challenge And how can funding or programs from the provincial government help alleviate those issues? Make class sizes smaller, get more support, more resource support, more special ed support would be huge. So that means hiring more teachers so you have more classes? Yes. And hiring more non-teachers that are in the classroom too? Well, not necessarily, I mean that could be part of it, but I'm thinking more specifically of more special education teachers who would be available to give extra support for the kids who need it most. And in the last number of years, uh, special education has been cut. It used to be that, um, I mean, back going back maybe five or six years, that special education was a focus and there was a lot of talk about building it and, and so on, but in the last few years, there have been more and more cuts. And you see that the result of that is that there's way less resource support um, for the kids every day in the classroom. I mean, I have lots of kids who could use so much more uh, individual support, small group support, and the reality is that it's just not available. The kids who end up getting most of the resource time that we do have to a lot are the super high needs kids who can be, you know, five, working maybe at five grade levels behind. So very, you know, it's, it's really hard for them to, to work with what is happening with most of the other students in the room. Mm-hmm. The reality in uh, my experience has been that um, what happens oftentimes is that, as you were saying, the kids who are very far behind get the resource support they need because they so desperately need it. But then you might have a child, you do have a child, who is, let's say, maybe only a year behind, and there's no resource support there for them. Mm-hmm. On paper there might be, but in reality, 
it, the the resource teacher just doesn't have the time to deliver it. Mm-hmm. So yes, more more spec ed teachers, more special education teachers would be helpful. But also, a lot of times, all that a child needs um, is some one-on-one attention that could be effectively delivered by an EA, by an educational assistant or a teaching assistant. And though the, their salaries are not as costly, so I think that's another solution too to bring in a lot more educational assistants. Um, into the classrooms to just touch base with those kids who, you know, it might be three minutes with one student and five minutes with another, but it can actually make the world of difference because then that student has what they need to progress on their own independently to do what's being asked of them versus sitting and they just don't know where to get started. So they're, they're stagnant and they're sitting and they're waiting. I think some people have this perception of special education as being for kids who have really severe developmental issues like advanced autism can you explain who actually needs special ed because it seems like more and more kids need that extra help there's a whole range of kids who need it there's kids who have an identified learning disability so that would be like adhd or add or something like that it, it could be um often it's not it's not more specific than to say it could be a learning dis- disability in language or more in math and receptive language expressive language and often it's described like that uh, depending on the individual Um, so learning disabilities and it can be minor learning disabilities or more significant learning disabilities but the thing is if you have a student even with a minor very minor learning disability but they're in a room with 30 or 31 other students and there's noise there's distractions there's so much going on that that you know even a learning disability that's less severe can be a a real block to that student moving forward so you know there's kids at all working at all different levels who really really could benefit hugely from more um just more one-to-one and i agree with the point that was just made that uh, often all it takes is to have you know some one-to-one or a small group extra attention in a small group to help move things forward for kids and then of course there's more severe Uh, needs as well. So what happens oftentimes in a school, there's a common saying that um, 5% of the students take up 95% of the time and care, both of the administrators, so that's like the vice principal and the principal, and the teachers and the A's. Um, And what you were asking your question about special education, it's interesting, I guess there is that perception that special education is just for really high need students, but in most schools you're looking at you know on average um, anywhere from 15 to 30 percent of the students in the population who have what's called an IEP which is an individual education plan and you don't have to have an identified um, learning disability or behavior issue or Asperger's or anything along those lines to have an IEP you can just be a student who has been identified by their teachers as someone who needs additional support in terms of having a quiet workspace to complete their tests, having additional time to complete their assessments, um, perhaps having some assistive technology so that they can do voice-to-text, complete their assignments with voice-to-text rather than having to write it out by hand, chunking their assignments, that sort of thing. That kind of student would also qualify for an individual education plan, which means they're classified as a spec ed student and they would receive resource support from a special education teacher and from an EA. So it's actually quite a high number of students in our system. Right, and even if parents 
who might be listening to this are thinking, well, my kid doesn't have that issue. Like, my kid does great in school and they have no problems. You would probably say that, well, when these kids aren't getting the help they need, higher achieving kids are held back too because they don't get to move forward faster. Absolutely. Yeah, you can't. The reality is, you can't progress to the next concept or the next lesson or the next idea or the next conversation uh, when you know that you know twenty percent of your kids aren't following along with what you're doing. So yeah, you're absolutely right. You have to attend to those kids before you can move on. Mm-hmm. So those, yeah, those higher achieving kids are absolutely being affected because they are, for lack of a better way, they're sitting in a waiting pattern, mm-hmm. waiting. Mm-hmm. And so. We talked about more funding for educational assistance, new teachers, small class sizes. Is there anything else that you're looking for in a premier or an education policy in June, in the June election? Yes. There's been, I wanted to hit on it earlier, um, when we were talking about the role of the special education teacher has changed because what happened in our school board, and I'm sure many school boards across the province, several years ago they took away um, in many schools, they took away funding for what's called a student support worker, which is essentially a mental health worker, someone to help their kids with their emotional and social difficulties, which, you know, it could be anything from bullying to anxiety to, you know, some overwhelming minor thing in our minds, but not to them, you know, a big friendship issue, uh, problems in the home, whatever it is that's taking them away and not having them develop in a positive way socially and therefore it's obviously affecting them in the classroom as well. So what we need to do is bring back that role because what's happened is the resource teachers have really had to fill that void. So oftentimes what the resource teachers are doing, as you mentioned, is working only with the highest needs behavior students and they're filling that role in of being a social and emotional support to many of our students. That's not meant to be their role. They're meant to be there to provide academic supports. So their role has shifted, and that's why we have this gap in being able to support um, only the highest needs special education students. Mm-hmm. I think that going back to the part about the point about mental health, I think that this is a huge gap, and that teachers can really be a canary in the coal mine. That we see, we see lots of issues. Um, from a young age, I mean, I'm working at the grade 7 and 8 level. Um, in the past, I've worked elementary, grade 4, 5, and 6, and so on. And, and we know, like, as teachers, we know, uh, we can see issues emerging. And we can, you know, look ahead and say, okay, this student uh, could really use some mental health support. And maybe the student is fortunate and their parents... Uh, a can recognize that and B have the resources to get some help for it Um, but that's not always the case you know there are parents who may not be able to recognize it themselves and they may not be able to access the resources I think I I really think a huge uh, improvement that we can make within the school system and then going out into broader society is if we put some more money into having having access to mental health teams say on a monthly basis where if we had a psychologist a social worker a psychiatrist occupational therapist and so on 
and if they were if they had a set number of schools and they visited once a month and then as teachers we could be looking at the needs that we're seeing and comparing our notes and kind of focusing on the kids who we're most concerned about and consult with this mental health team who could come in and and be available once a month i mean the reality is right now uh, that in theory um, you know that there are some mental health resources within the board but that really only applies to kids who are a very very small percentage of kids who would be extremely severe you know mm-hmm. and, and whereas you know mental health covers so many aspects uh in preparation for our chat that we were going to have today i actually went and looked at the platforms of the candidates online and the only specific mention about mental health was on um, Kathleen Wynn's site, the liberal site, where she's talking about bringing in 400 new mental health workers into high schools. That's a great start, but if you think about the number of high schools across Ontario, it's a pretty minor contribution. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's a really, truly urgent problem, and this only makes mention of high schools. Mm-hmm. You need that in definitely in grade 7, 8, which is still considered in the elementary panel, and I currently I teach elementary grade six so and from what I can see you need it all the way down starting in grade four really mm-hmm. so y- you both teach in more rural school board right and mm-hmm. so you from our conversations before this I know that you often teach kids who come from more poor backgrounds or backgrounds where they don't have as much access necessarily to outside like psychological help or outside resources mm-hmm. do you think that this kind of mental health support would be able to support them even if their parents aren't able to? Well, you mean what's being offered by the Liberals right mm-hmm. now? It depends on what form that actually takes. I mean, if we you know, if we look at 400 mental health workers across the province, how many schools would end up with much additional support? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Probably that would be spread very thin. In theory, it could, depending on how it's implemented. If it's something that's available at school and schools are able to get the consent of the parents then absolutely there's a good possibility that that could be helpful Mm -hmm. for kids and and, you know again like back to the point of quite often what kids need is for someone to pay attention to them and talk to them and let them know and validate them and and let them know that they're not alone and that there's somebody here with them and and wanting to um, recognize them and know you know really cares about them Mm -hmm. I think what you're possibly trying to get at is is there a difference or a a higher level of mental health support needed in schools that um, might have a higher population of more underprivileged kids possibly but I think the the mental health supports are needed uh, very needed in urban schools as well. I think perhaps the, the issues that the kids are facing might be different, but I doubt that the level of anxiety or stress that those kids feel is less. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Um, so my next question is, what are some positive things that you see in our education system now and that you'd like to see continue in the next couple of years? Is there anything that comes to mind? <laughs> yeah, I think it's pretty incredible, actually, the honestly you know obviously I'm biased but the professionalism and the dedication and the work ethic of teachers because teaching is kind of a unique occupation amongst professionals in that um, once a teacher has been teaching for past 11 years 
um, there, there aren't any more pay raises. Okay. Mm -hmm. You're, you're on a set grid. So you've reached the maximum amount that you're ever going to pay. You're ever going to get paid. Your salary is never going to go up. Um, but yet, so, you know, you could argue that, well, you know, you could get a little lackadaisical and not be as inspired because what's in it for me kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But teachers, regardless of what stage they are in their career, it's been, and I've been teaching for 21 years now, and I've taught in a number of different schools. By and large, teachers are so dedicated in terms of giving of their time, constantly trying to renew their skills, being willing to run clubs, being willing to run teams, um, staying in at lunch with kids who need extra help. It's everywhere. You just have to walk through school and you see all of those good things that are happening. So yeah, I think that it constantly amazes me and impresses me and inspires me actually that by and large teachers aren't stagnant. They are very motivated and dedicated. So that to me is a really great thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And as much as I, I really feel strongly that we uh, we really need to put some more funding into mental health resources. Um, absolutely, I think it's a huge glaring need. Um, but on the positive side, I think the increased level of awareness and understanding about mental health um, is translating into more understanding of issues that arise in the classroom and that um, as teachers we're able to better understand where kids are coming from and to reach reach out to them uh, a little bit more effectively than perhaps even 10 years ago when the understanding was not as clear as it as it hopefully is becoming now that's true so both for us as educators and also just generating an acceptance within schools that it's okay to talk about whatever mental health issue you might be having and that it really should be a focus in schools. I know that a local high school here just completed a whole mental health week. So I think for the the afternoon, each week for five days, the focus of the school classes were not on and the focus of the school was in what ways can we support our kids with their mental health. Because it, if you don't have that, then you really can't be expected to taking the curriculum. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, speaking of the curriculum, the NDP have proposed that they want to get rid of EQAO, which is a standardized testing that kids have to write every three years, mm -hmm. up until grade nine, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, what are your thoughts on standardized testing and potentially getting rid of it? I think we should absolutely get rid of it. I think it's a huge waste of time, and I think it causes a lot of stress for students. I think it causes a lot of stress for teachers. Um, teachers, you know know that uh, lots of people outside of schools and even within schools are making judgments based on results and how meaningful are the results in my opinion they're not particularly meaningful um, and yet there's so much time energy and money that goes into creating these standardized tests and how much do they really say about any individual student how much and how can you make a judgment about a school based on you know some it's such a blind, blind assumptions, and and I I would love to see the standardized testing go, and I hope that that does happen. I'm not against standardized testing. I think that there is value in giving kids a common assessment and and seeing where the variations are across schools and across regions and that sort of thing, if you are taking into account. Um, the other factors that might be affecting student achievement. And I, I don't think there's any way that you can't argue that socioeconomic factors are going to affect 
how a school overall comes out on the results. Mm. That being said, I generally think that the cons of EQAO outweigh the pros. It is a lot of stress on the students. It is a lot of stress on the teachers. It's even a lot of stress on the administration. It's the top down. Mm-hmm. It starts with the director and it, and it funnels its way down. And I think that it's become too much of a focus in our schools. Whereas I think you might see better results from the kids if they didn't feel the pressure that they do to perform well on this test. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that, as much as we might want to, as teachers, insulate the students from that pressure that we feel, I think over time, most kids are going to pick up on that, no matter how hard we try to insulate them from that. And you have kids coming in with this sense of dread about this test. And I teach grade 6, so I teach in a year where the EQAO assessment is administered. It's grade 3, grade 6, grade 9 in math, and grade 10 for literacy. And uh, all year long, I try to dissuade them from their notions that this is going to be a stressful event. But until they experience it, 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 I know that for some students, it definitely is a source of anxiety. So for me, the negatives outweigh the positives. Mm-hmm. And then there's no benefits to the students themselves. Like the, the kids are gaining nothing from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember being so stressed about writing my EQAOs. Even in like grade 9, I was worried about failing, even mm-hmm. though... You don't even face any consequences. Well, maybe you do in grade nine. I'm not sure, but you you anyway. don't face consequences in grade nine. The mm-hmm. only real consequence comes in grade ten, right? Where if you don't and pass the literacy too. test, well, yeah, if you don't pass the literacy test, then I then eventually what happens is you need to take a literacy course. Mm-hmm. And if you don't pass the literacy course, well, it's a requirement of your graduation, mm-hmm. so it's pretty high stakes. Yeah. Um, do you think that this can lead to the phenomenon of like teaching to the test instead of teaching to create like a critical individual who can go into post-secondary and perform better? Given the amount of pressure that there are, given the amount of publicity that goes into the results that are published and the way that it can be interpreted by, uh, you know, members of the public, um, I think that's absolutely a possibility. Uh, there's a huge amount of pressure. If there's a lot of pressure, then... Uh, sure, that can affect uh, decisions that are made and it can affect the way that time and energy is allotted, which I think is definitely a problem. And this pressure comes from the fact that the results of the EQA are published and schools are ranked based on how well their students perform. That's right. So if you're teaching in a really bottom-ranked school, it makes you as educators look worse and it makes your school look worse Mm -hmm. so parents are less likely to send their kids there. Mm -hmm. And I mean, and there was uh, you know, we touched on the idea of uh, you know, that standardized testing could be okay if the mitigating factors were looked at. But I think that it's next to impossible to do an analysis, a meaningful analysis of the mitigating factors because those vary so much with the school, the area, with the region. I don't think there's any way that that could be done. So with that, with that in mind, I, I don't, um, yeah, I don't see the value in it mm. at all. Okay. Um, I'm almost done my questions. The last thing I want to ask you guys about is if you, well, second last thing. First off, I'm going to ask you who you think you're going to be voting for in June based on what you know now and what you're looking for in a premiere. And then I'm going to follow that up with asking you why you became teachers and why you still teach. So first off, premiere, who are you thinking? Horvath, Ford, or Wynn? 
So I wanted to, I mean, I know, I knew that we were going to be having this chat today and I knew on a surface level who I thought I wanted to vote for. So then when I did a little bit of homework and went online and actually read the different candidates' platforms specifically related to their stance on education, uh, it confirmed what I thought, which is I believe at this point in any case that I will be voting NDP. I'll be voting for Andrea Horvath. Her platform online is extremely clear and specifically related to education. She's got six key components and she breaks it down. And bottom line, what she's saying is that she wants to um, put in a lot of money into education, $1.5 billion. She wants to help out at the various levels. So she wants to get rid of a lot of um, student loans and transfer those into grants, which I think is great because there's a lot of kids who come out of university with uh, a huge debt load and mm-hmm. they're so they're looking at their student debt load and it's the same time in their life that in two or three years they're going to be hoping to buy a house and get a mortgage and mortgage rates are on the rise housing rates are higher than they've ever been so I think it's a it's a really hard way to start out your adult professional life when you mm-hmm. have this big debt load I think that's a good idea the other thing is um, she is promoting an NTQAO, which I think is a positive and I think it's needed. I think it's an NTQAO is going to bring more authentic teaching to schools, bottom line. Um, the other thing that I liked is that she wants to look at the whole funding formula of how the funding envelopes are allotted to school boards. And she wants to look at um, one thing that we did touch on, which was high-needs behavior students, which can lead to violence in the classroom. So she wants to address violence in the classrooms. She wants to reduce class sizes. And she wants to um, fund special education based on the individual needs of the students, not on the overall school population. I thought that the Liberal platform had good things to say. Um, They're looking at... um, bringing in more guidance counselors into grade 7 and 8, which I think is really positive, bringing in more educational assistance, which I also think is really positive. But overall, there was more money and more specifics when I looked at Andrea Horvath's platform versus Kathleen Wynne. And when I went to uh, Doug Ford's, there was literally no platform of any kind. So I I wasn't even able to inform myself because there was no information there. Mm -hmm. Except for the fact that, and you mentioned this before we started recording, that he wants to review or roll back the sex ed reform that took place in 2015. Um, do you have any feelings about that? Would you want, are you opposed to that or do you support that? Or I'm opposed to that. I think that that was a well-researched curriculum. I think it's a sound curriculum. And I don't, I know that his position is that we should let, uh, parents make those decisions well the reality is that some parents are just too uncomfortable to have those real conversations with their kids Mm -hmm. so their kids are going to do exactly what I did they're going to talk to their friends at least now they have online access but we know that a lot of online sources are completely unreliable no I think it is an important role that that the school system plays to deliver um, sex education to kids and I think that you have to trust educators to do a responsible informed job of that Mm-hmm. And this is coming from a teacher in the Catholic school board. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> what about you? What do you think um, you'll be, or who do you think you'll be voting for in June? Well, based on the research that uh, we just covered, uh, I mean, for me, it would have to be NDP because mm-hmm. it, according to their platform, it uh, sounds like they'll be putting more money into education. And I do think that uh, this is a huge need. I think, you know, we are helping to we are helping future citizens develop today 
And if we invest wisely now in these future citizens, I think socially we'll save a fortune. Mm-hmm. We will, you know, have, in theory, if we really invest now and if we really try to address mental health needs and learning needs, I think we'll have, you know, you could actually look at um, reducing your level of crime, reducing your level of um, joblessness and, and or and you know, and helping more people reach their true potential. And, mm-hmm. and I really believe that. I think there are so many kids who just don't, you know, they just don't necessarily have the same opportunities that others do. Um, and, and that can have an impact on them for the rest of their lives and also on greater society for the rest of, of their lives as well. Mm-hmm. So, yes, um, spend more money in education. You know, we are here. We're here for the kids. We want to build the kids up. Um, that's what we're trying to do. Give us more tools to help make that happen and give us good access to professionals who can really help address the problems that go beyond the kinds of conversations that a classroom teacher can have with a student mm-hmm. on any given day. We're happy to have those conversations. We have them every day. We, but you can only go so far when you're chatting with a student in the hallway and you've got 30 other ones in the classroom. Yeah. You, know, you can only do so many let's talk for 15 minutes at lunch. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that only goes so far. And, and as I said, we are there we are there, we are doing that, but the need is so much greater than that, and we're doing these kids an enormous disservice by not putting in the resources to start meeting that. Mm-hmm. Your, your school age years are the years when you are literally being shaped as a human being for the rest of your life. So I really don't think there's any de- denying how critical it is that kids go through school with a positive experience where they feel, number one, supported, where their self-esteem is fostered, and then where they're built up into confident learners. Mm -hmm. A lot of times when people are criticizing the NDP or even the Liberals for spending too much money, they say that our deficit is getting too big. But what I've been thinking about lately, and I think you guys will probably agree, um, is that there's a difference between like a fiscal deficit and a social deficit. So when all these kids are being left behind, that is even more impactful than having a provincial debt or whatever, because this is a real drain on our society as a whole. Well, and the other thing about that is a social deficit is going to cause a fiscal deficit. Mm-hmm. If you just want to look at it in those terms, you are going to be supporting the kids who felt unsupported in their school age years for the rest of our tax-paying lives. If those kids um, end up needing mental health supports, if they develop really serious mental health issues, if they decide to err on the wrong side of the law, then they're going to be you know, housed in a correctional facility. What's the cost of that? It's massive. Mm-hmm. And what's the cost even on a more minor level if they don't get to fulfill their potential, as you were saying, and they're in you know, poverty line jobs or they end up on social assistance? There's huge fiscal costs to not helping kids realize their full potential Mm -hmm. and then the trickle down effect so their kids their children and and so on and so on Mm -hmm. great okay final question can you guys tell me why you first decide to become a teacher and then why you still teach and why you still hopefully love teaching Hmm. uh well i'm happy to say i do still love teaching and for me it's gonna it sounds really simple and Maybe it is, but um, I just, I've always, I love kids. I love being with kids. I love being with students all day. Um, it's, 
fun, it's stimulating. I feel like I'm doing something that's meaningful. Uh, every day is different. Uh, it's challenging. Um, it's also active. You know, I'm on my feet all day. I'm having lots of conversations. I'm doing lots of different things. It's dynamic. Um, and I mean, and I've said this many times, and, and I'll say it again here. I really feel that it's a privilege to get to spend my days um, with these kids, these amazing, interesting, fascinating, sometimes frustrating <laughs> kids um, who have, you know, I feel like I learn a lot from. Mm-hmm. I became a teacher because of a teacher. A teacher who I really respected uh, suggested to me when I was in my OAC year that it's something that I should really think about because one of our um, year-end projects is that I had to actually go in and run a class uh, with grade six students and she saw me in that form and uh, I guess she liked what she saw and she had a you know as teachers do she took me aside she took the time to invest in me a little bit and said you know this is really something you should think about and here's why and because I um, felt so connected to her I really took what she said to heart and then I started to think about it seriously myself Um, why do I still teach I think teaching plays to my strengths Um, I think that I have patience and good communication skills and those are two really key aspects of teaching and teaching is an incredibly rewarding job. It's very challenging. It can be very frustrating at times, but the rewards of it, for the most part, far outweigh the challenges. I am never, ever watching the clock. In fact, I'm always chasing the clock, <laughs> trying to get more done in my day. It is, um, I'm on the go. I'm. They are challenging me. I'm always teaching new things, and I'm, because I'm teaching new things, I'm learning new things, and my days are varied and I'm I never have a day where I'm not laughing and where a kid doesn't say something that makes me happy and makes me feel like okay I I did something really worthwhile today that's a pretty amazing job Mm -hmm. I think most people have a story like that about a teacher who's changed their lives or pushed them or encouraged them to go beyond what they think they can do I've had many teachers like that I have professors like that at university and it's crazy how, like you said, even taking 15 minutes out of your lunch break can change the course of someone's whole life. All right, so that was our interview with a couple uh, Catholic school board teachers in the Ottawa area. Um, uh, Kate, I have to ask you, uh, what do you think? Uh, is this an election issue for you? And how has it uh, yeah. affected your your election meter? Um, education, to me, is one of the most important Um, policies that is managed by the provincial government and so it really does matter to me Um, I think some of the things the teachers brought up I hadn't really thought about that much before other than just being like education is good but when we talked about standardized testing we talked about the EQAO issues and especially the issue of mental health in the classroom and how that impacts their ability to be Mm. efficient educators Mm -hmm. I think um, their conclusion that the NDP offered the most holistic um, approach to their needs was pretty sound and mm-hmm. that um, I found that really convincing personally. Mm-hmm. Definitely. For myself I, I have to agree with you mm-hmm. I found the, uh, the especially the mental health stuff uh, especially for grade 7 and 8 like that is like literally the worst time of your life. Um, yeah exactly and like I said in the in the interview 400 or 450 whatever it sounds great 
But when you think about it, Ontario is a huge province with a lot of schools and a lot of need. Mm -hmm. So doesn't necessarily go as far as it might sound. Yeah, and, and you know, especially, like, we talked about on our NDP episode, like, how they're going to have, like, a an, an, uh, mental health ministry that, like, that mm-hmm. seems... Uh, this Stuff like this could fall under... Stuff like mental health care... Mental health in the classroom. Um, mm-hmm. It could fall under that. Like, one of our teachers said, you know, um, this is, like, where adults are shaped... Like, they, they're shaped, right? Like, at this... Mm-hmm. Um, in the classroom. So, um, I think... Uh, it's hugely important and um, it's something we need to pay more attention to. So uh, that's episode eight. We would Yay. love it if you, we only have a few weeks left um, oh my God. Of, of the Ontario election uh, edition of Undecided Podcast. Um, <laughs> we'd love it if you followed us on social media. We're at Undecided Podcast on Instagram, at Undecided underscore pod on Twitter. Uh, DM us or leave us a comment um, and let us know what you want us to talk about. Um, we only have like, you know, four or five episodes left. Um, I can't remember how many exactly at this very moment. Uh, but, uh, uh, like, we want to know what you want to hear about. Um, give us your feedback, uh, etc. Um, and I think with, with that, Kate, do you have anything else you want to say? Thank you to the teachers and consider them when you vote in June. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, well, uh, that's, that's our eighth episode. Thank you for sticking around. See you next week. Bye.